morning, and thank you so much for being here. Uh, I hope that this morning encourages you. Uh, but if nothing else, please know that, that I'm encouraged by you being here. And I'm sure that those sitting around you are also encouraged by you being here. As we transition from worship uh, through music to worship through the preaching of God's Word, uh, I want to invite you to read God's Word with me. Our passage today is James uh, chapter 4. We're going to read verses 13 through 16 together, and then we'll pray. And then we'll look at it. Um, you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. This passage is on your bulletin as well, right there at the top. And it will also be on the screens right behind me. This is James 4, 13 through 16. It says this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you have chosen to, to reveal yourself through it, that we might know you, that we might know ourselves in light of who you are. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would uh, just use me today, that I would get out of the way and just be an instrument for what you would, you would have us hear from you today. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear that as we look at your word, that you would use it to correct us, but also to comfort us and uh, that we would get out of it today exactly what you would have for us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I, I want to begin by talking about a common experience that we probably all have had to varying degrees. And this experience is when you've planned a, a day or a portion of the day or a week and, and you've had your plans, you've had your idea of how the day was going to go. And then it got completely derailed by an unexpected twist or an unexpected turn along the way, right? So, so maybe you had this great trip planned, this vacation, and you had the bags packed and you had the car loaded and you made arrangements for someone to come and let your dog out while you were gone and you had the hotel booked and the Disney passes ready or whatever it is you were going to do. And you get in the car, you put the kids in the car, you go to crank the car and nothing. Right? And the entire day, the entire trip is suddenly derailed. And now you're unloading the kids and you're unloading the bag maybe into a different car. Or you're taking the car to the shop or getting it towed. And what you do is you go, man, this day is not how I saw it going. Maybe it's a kid's birthday party that you plan for in your house, right? And, and you bought the sprinkler and you bought the water slides and you got all the hamburgers that you're going to do on the grill. And then two days of torrential downpour and thunderstorms completely changed the plan, right? And suddenly all these people are in your house and not in your yard and you don't know where to cook all the food and it's just not what you thought it was going to be. 
I've spoken with two different families in the last six months that had this international trip plan, right? And they had very meticulously planned every day and every meal and all the historical sites that they wanted to see in the museums and the things they were going to do. And their passports just didn't come in time. And they had to cancel the entire trip and postpone it for another day, right? Or maybe it's as simple as you just had made plans to go eat dinner somewhere. And you had already picked out the restaurant and the appetizer you were going to start with. And then this is the meal I'm going to get after that. And this is the dessert they have that I really want. And your taste buds are already dreaming of it and planning on it. And then you get there and there's a sign on the door that says, restaurant closed for private catering event. All right. And you have to completely pivot. Or maybe it's as simple as going through the drive-thru at McDonald's to find out the ice cream machine is broken (laughs) again, and you can't have it, right? Or going through Chick-fil-A on a Sunday and going, oh yeah, man, and they just changed. My wife and I recently had this experience. Uh, She and I had made plans one evening to put the kids to bed, and then she would grab a blanket, and I would grab the double-stuffed Oreos, and we would meet back on the sofa to watch the exclamation mark of March Madness, which is the Men's Basketball National Championship, right? And so we divide and conquer. She takes what at the time was our 10-month-old son, Henry, and I take our four-year-old daughter, Nora, and she's going to do bedtime with him, and I'm going to do bedtime with her, and we'll meet back. And so she goes, and she does bedtime like a rock star, of course, and within 20 minutes, Henry is asleep, and she's ready to go. However, for me, the less professional of the parents takes Nora, and we read our book, and we say our prayers, But then you know how this goes, right? Where, oh, well, now she needs a glass of milk. All right, go get a glass of milk. Oh, I forgot to brush my teeth. All right, we'll go brush our teeth. Oh, I got to go to the bathroom. All right, I'll go to the bathroom. You good? You good? All right. Oh, I heard something, Dad. There's a shadow on the wall. Where's my my stuffy, right? The animal that we have to have when we sleep. Where is it? And and it it takes a lot longer for me to get her settled, uh, but I do it. So finally, Nora's asleep. So I go in the living room, I grab the Oreos, I do my job, get on the sofa. And right when I get on the sofa uh, to start the game, I get a phone call, which is not a big deal. So I I take the phone call. It's something that's a little bit more pressing. And so I walk out on the front porch and and take the phone call for about five to 10 minutes. And and that's not a big deal until I walk back in the house to the front door that's in desperate need of some WD-40, which is also just my fault, I'll own that. And so I open the door and it makes this huge loud noise and now my son is awake again and he doesn't wanna go back to sleep. And so then I go and I get him, it's my fault, and so I'll take this one, mom, it's good. And so I take Henry and I spend a, a good amount of time rocking this child, trying to just get him back to sleep, get him, get him going. So finally I do it. By the time he's asleep, my daughter's asleep, back on the sofa, it's halftime. All right, so I've missed the whole first half of the game. So we pivot, right? That's not what we thought, but we can pivot. We're, we're used to this. We've got two kids, nothing new. And so we're like, let's watch the second half in bed. All right, we'll just go in there. I'm going to eat Oreos in bed. Don't judge me. And so we take the Oreos in bed and we get in the bed to watch the second half. We settle in, we get through halftime. And uh, right when we get there, third quarter starts, I hear a door open and I hear a little pitter patter across the hall. It's my daughter. She's woken up for whatever reason. And so she walks into our room 
And she does her move, right, where she kind of leans up on me and she gets in our bed and she picks up my arm and she puts my arm under her body and then she lays her head right here on my chest because that little girl knows that this dad is not sending her back to her room when she does that. <laughs> and so after that, it's like, all right, well, Nora's watching basketball tonight, right? Not a big deal. We're just, we're going to do this. And so we settle into the third quarter and, and finally I'm getting to watch it and I'm trying to sneak Oreos on the side so Nora doesn't know because she's going to want them. And, and uh, we spend about five minutes watching the game and Nora's just laying there, uh, sweet and innocent, but unknown to me, there is a battle raging inside of her between her digestive system and what she ate for dinner. Right? And I don't know. It's very inconspicuous. It's all in here. And she's just laying there real sweet. So she, after a time, she lifts her head up off of my chest and she kind of looks at me. And that inconspicuous battle becomes very loud. And it expresses itself all over me and all over the bed and all over my package of the double stuffed Oreos. And I know that the battle's not over because I know my kid and it never is just once, right? So I pick her up. I'm throwing her out of the bed. We're running to the bathroom. She is continuing to express her displeasure with what she ate for dinner. And it's redecorating the carpet and the walls and everything in the bathroom and on the way to the bathroom. And so I finally get her in the bathroom. My objective is just get this kid in the shower. I mean, she's covered. I'm covered. Just put her in the shower. So I'm trying to get her in the shower. And she's, I don't want to take a shower. I'm tired. And she's kind of not even know what's going on. Finally, uh, Sarah, my wife, thankfully comes to the rescue. And she's like, I got her which was just in time. Because while I'm not particularly a weak-stomached person, this one got me. So now I'm rushing from the bathroom in our room to the bathroom in the hall to express my displeasure in the displeasure that has just been expressed all over me. So I get to the bathroom, and now I'm losing my dinner. And the problem with that is that while I'm losing my dinner, my son now wakes up hearing me do that. So now my daughter is in our bathroom crying while Sarah's tending to her. I'm in the guest bathroom losing weight, and my son is now awake. And so by the time we scrub the carpet and wash the sheets and scrub the walls and get both kids back to sleep and all the sheets changed, of course, the game is over, and we have totally missed it. Uh, but only by God's grace do my wife and I look at each other at about 2 a.m. and go, wow, this is not how I saw this night going, right? When we made these plans at 7.30, we'll just put the kids to bed and get on the sofa and watch the game. This is not how I saw this night going. And I would imagine that if we could all go to lunch today, that we could all sit at the lunch table and we could all tell stories about times uh, where mishaps happened or something unexpected happened, whether with the kids or with the car or with the dog or with the weather. And we could all laugh uh, about what seems inconsequential now, but at the time was probably not very funny, uh, and tell stories together. I'm sure that you've all experienced that. But, you know, my guess is that we could also go to lunch and sit down and we could tell one another stories in times when things didn't go as planned, or maybe they're currently not going as planned, and it doesn't feel so inconsequential. Maybe it feels like it's taking your breath away. 
It, it feels like a heavy weight that's just sitting on your chest or a dark cloud that's just following you around. I think COVID did this for a lot of us in a lot of different ways. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis that was just not part of the plan for you. Right? Maybe it's the loss of a job that was an unexpected twist. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one and that wasn't part of the plan. Maybe it's dreams that you thought would have come to fruition by now and you're mourning the loss of those dreams, right? Maybe you're sitting here today with a heaviness and a weight on you thinking, this is not how I thought my day would go. This is not how I saw my life going. Maybe you're thinking, I just, I thought that I would have been married by now. Or maybe you're thinking, I thought we would have still been married by now. Maybe you're thinking, I, I thought that we would have had kids by now. I, I thought that I would be attending that other university by now. I thought that they would still be here by now. And I believe that all of these unexpected twists and unexpected turns are very good practical experiential teachers that show us the heaviness of the truth that James is teaching us today. And this is mostly a corrective passage in James. See, 2 Timothy 3.16 lets us know that the Bible has so many different things that it can do and will do for us, right? It's, it's useful for teaching, for training, but also for correcting. And what James is doing today primarily is he's correcting in us a certain way of thinking that is sinful, and, and he's seeking to correct how we make plans, how we think about our lives. And so my goal for us this morning, my prayer for us leading up to this throughout this past week is that we would leave today feeling appropriately small. That we would leave today with an appropriate awareness of how fragile our lives are and our plans are. And that that would create a deeper dependence on God in which we would be overwhelmed with his glory and ultimately comforted when things don't go the way that we thought that they would go. So we're going to do this. If, if you've been with us through the book of James, you know that James loves this idea of contrast. He loves to take two things and contrast them. We saw in James 3, 13 through 18, the contrast between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Then in James 4, 1 through 12, we just saw that he's finished contrasting friendship with the world and friendship with God, two contradictory realities in our hearts. He does the same thing here where in verse 13, you'll see, you say this. And then he comes back in verse 15 and says, but you ought to say this. Again, it's this idea of contrast. You talk this way, but you should talk this way. And what we'll see is it's not ultimately about how you talk, right? But it's what's going on in here. So let's look at verse 13 together and see what exactly he is correcting. This is what he says. 
He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. Kent Hughes has a commentary on James, and he says this about the context of what's happening. He says, this attack is specifically aimed at the materialistically focused Christian merchants in his congregations who arrogantly mapped out their destinations and sojourns on the basis of profitability with no reference to the will of God. There's good reason to believe that the congregation he's writing to here in the book of James is, is a group of Christians that when they were converted, their conversion costed them something socially and economically, their profession of Jesus as Lord and Savior, it came with a cost. But at the time, they were so on fire for God that it didn't matter, right? Those costs, the social implications of their salvation, they felt very, very minuscule compared to the glory of being in a relationship with God. The problem is that as life settled down, their materialistic cares began to dominate them again. Kent Hughes continues, he says, soon they reverted back to being self-made, self-assured men, who though now Christians live as if the world is all there is. If they prayed in reference to their lives, it was not to ask God where and what they should do, but to ask his blessing on their plan. Now, there's a, a few clarifications here that are really helpful, lest we misunderstand the heart of what James is saying, right? He, he's, he's not saying that we should sink into a lifestyle of professional apathy or that any kind of planning or profiting is wrong. This is the clarification. Uh, he's saying that we should uh, always interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, right? And so we know that he's not talking against profit and planning. Because we see in other passages of Scripture, such as the parable of the talents, right? In Matthew 25, 14 through 13, the whole point of that parable is to teach us that we should leverage and invest our resources to make a profit. That's the point of Matthew 25. So we know that James isn't contradicting scripture saying, hey, making a profit's wrong. That's sinful. Don't do it. It's not about that. We also know he's not telling us that making plans is wrong. Proverbs 21.5 says, the, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. So, so with this in mind, the clarifications are really important, and I want you to know that James is not rebuking their occupation here, but their attitude. That, that James is he's not rebuking capitalism, but worldly materialism, which we see earlier in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, right, where he's saying, you're obsessed with the world. James is not against embracing a profitable position, but a prideful disposition. That's the point that we need to get here. And, and this is a little bit hard because James is very practical. The, 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 the uh, rap that the book of James gets is it's all about good works. 
What's tricky about this passage is there's not a call to just change an attitude, right? Even though it looks as if he's saying, instead of talk this way, just talk this way and you're good. The heart of this passage is about what's going on inside of us. And it's a spiritual transformation regarding how we see the world. That's the point of it. And so what's hard is there's not just an action step today where you say, okay, I'm going to do this now. James is getting to the root of how we see the world. The gospel lens or lack of gospel lens through which we make plans and see our lives. James is addressing Christians here who profess Christ with their lips, but fail to consider him in their lives. One term that's really helpful here is that they're living their life as if they were practical or functional atheists. Right? The belief that there is no God. Now, now we would say, I believe there is a God, but how do we live? I wonder if some of us in this room don't need to stop today and repent of the same functional atheism in our own lives. Right? It's a life that's filled with planning and profiting and spending and decision-making without ever pausing to consider whether those plans are being made with consideration to God at all. I know that if I'm not careful, it's really easy for me to fall into a life of practical atheism. Because what happens is if, if I'm not careful, it's easy to get swept up into the urgency of what seems to always demand my attention. Right? You know, there's, there's always something in front of you that seems like it has to be handled right now that's, that's non-eternal, right? There's always something. The grass has to get cut. It's up to my knees. The kids have to get fed. They're crying. There's always something demanding our attention. But there's also, in the digital world, there's always something that's diverging my attention, I mean, we've got these phones in our pockets and anytime you get bored for a second, you just pull it out and you can zone out. There's always something to diverge our attention. But in a world of immediate satisfaction, there's always something that will also diminish my attention. And so in a world of, de of my attention being demanded, my attention being diverged and my attention being diminished. It's really, really easy to get caught up in life and live as if there is no God. My plans, my profits, my dreams, my comforts, my wills, with no consideration to God at all. And suddenly we're living a life of practical atheism. I'm so grateful for James today because he is here to correct course for us. It's the beautiful thing about the gospel, right? Is there's grace. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God loves us so much that when we begin living in sin or off course, he gently comes and he corrects us. So our passage today is a correction. He does this in verse 14. Look what he says. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
This is a very practical James offering a very practical reality check for the church. Two things specifically that he reminds us of right here. The first is that we really have no control of the future. Our plans are incredibly fragile. I mean, we can make plans and there's nothing wrong with that, but, but know that your plans for the rest of the day and the rest of the week, they can change just like the wind, right? You've experienced this. But it also teaches us a second truth and that's that our lives are incredibly brief and fragile. Some of you have heartbreakingly experienced this as well. James says that our lives are like a mist. It's here and it's gone. I think we forget how fragile our plans can be, how fragile our lives are. And as tough as the book of James is, right? It's all about you got to do and you got to work, not to earn your salvation, but real faith is faith that works. And, and faith without fruit is not real faith. And we wrestle with James, and, and I've been fighting with James for a couple years now. His very plain, his very practical instructions about this is what the Christian life should look like. It hurts. But I think we should also admit here that the clarity of the book of James and the direct approach that James takes, it's actually pretty refreshing, I think, if we're being honest. James isn't spending time today digging around our sin and and kind of trying to soften the blow. And he's got a little shovel trying to get the small little roots of, of sin out of our lives. James here is taking an axe of truth and he is chopping at the root of all of our sin, which is ultimately a robust root of pride right here. He's not messing around. He's coming for your pride today. And the Holy Spirit, I pray, is going to use his words to just wreck you and me in our pride. We know this because in verse 16, he says this, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. You see the connection here is it's arrogance, it's pride within us that is leading to this life of practical atheism. James is drawing the the very obvious connection between those two. And living in that sin, creating that practical atheism, he says is evil. Pride had snuck in and made the church delusional delusional enough to believe that they were ultimately in control of their own lives and their own plans so that they could determine every day and every step and every detail without pausing to consider God and his will at all. Now, of course, the, the, the primary problem is that this diminishes God of his glory, Right? We're not giving God glory when we're living as if he doesn't exist. When we fail to be mindful of his power and kingship as the creator of the universe. But you know what else this does for us practically is it really creates, I believe, a suffocating amount of pressure and anxiety and stress in our lives. Doesn't it? Some of you guys, maybe you experience this and you don't even know it. 
But when we feel like our plans and our life is in our control, it creates a lot of pressure on us, doesn't it? That's just always there. I think it creates a lot of anxiety on us that's always there. And that's not the life that God has for us. That's not peace. That's not sitting beside paths of still waters. I want to illustrate this suffocating pressure and reality of pride by showing you the opposite, right? This uh, idea of the joy of humility. At the very end of J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, uh, there's this conversation between a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins and a wizard named Gandalf. And that is a really, really nerdy sentence to say. And so if you like Lord of the Rings, you're with me. And if not, don't judge me. Uh, But in this conversation, Bilbo Baggins is reflecting, the small hobbit is reflecting on his time and all of his adventures, right? These are grand adventures that are filled with battles and large scale outcomes in which he plays in his mind a significant part in helping the dwarves reclaim their home, right, from the dragon. And this is the conversation after all of those adventures that they're having between Gandalf and Bilbo. This is what he says. Then the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true after a fashion, said Bilbo. Well, of course, said Gandalf. And why should they not prove to be true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck? just for your sole benefit? So you're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I'm very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. To which Bilbo Baggins laughingly responds, thank goodness. And isn't this response beautiful? Gandalf reminds him that in all his actions, in all his adventures, in all of his outcomes, they were just a small part of a grand master plan in which he was just a very, very small player. And as Gandalf reminds him of his smallness, he doesn't become frustrated or discouraged or mad or upset or offended. What does he feel? relief. Thank goodness for that. You know, as we recount our lives and our plans and our hopes and our future goals, it's easy for us to become self-obsessed. And I think we all sometimes need a Gandalf, which today is a James saying, hey, you're really just a little guy after all. Just this little guy in in a big, big part. And there's a relief when we see that our lives are just a small, tiny, minuscule part in the grand scheme of something so much bigger. That even the things that we feel like we have the most control over are subject to change that is out of our control completely. This is where God's economy is so good is because typically in the way that our world functions, this kind of a truth 
would create more anxiety, right? Don't we feel more anxious when we're out of control? We feel more nervous when we're out of control. We feel more stress when we're out of control. But if I can just be in control, then I'm good because I trust me a lot. And if I can just control everything, then I'll cut down on my stress and I'll be in good shape. That's the way that the world operates. It's so cool that James is turning that upside down and going, oh, no, 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 no. The fact that you're not in control doesn't create more stress. It creates comfort. And verse 15 tells us exactly why that is. Look. 15 says this, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Remember, James loves contrast. So he brings out this idea of contrast again. You say this, now in verse 15, but instead you ought to say this. You think this way, but you should think this way. Because we know by now it's not about the words, right? It's not so simple as if you just tack on if the Lord wills, well then, yeah, just keep going about your business. So you guys leave, keep living like you're living. And at the end of every sentence, just put, well, if the Lord wills and we're good. That's, that's not it, right? Because we know earlier in James that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so this is not a word issue. This is a heart issue. So James, after he's attacked the root of sin in our lives, right? He's saying, hey, listen, you're fragile. Your plans are fragile. Your whole life is a vapor. The pride of man has been cut with the acts of truth. He comes in and he replants us out of the seedbed of sin into a whole new seedbed of truth where we can flourish as God created us to flourish. He takes the pride of man and he corrects it with the providence of God. What do I mean when I say the providence of God? What is that? I'm going to define it for you. Uh, this is according to the Baker Compact Dictionary of Theological Terms. It's a mouthful, but the Baker Compact Dictionary of Theological Terms, you should all go home and buy one. You can get it on Amazon. It's really great. It's small. You can keep it in your pocket all the time. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. Be nerdy. But, but it's got all the words you need, all the Bible words, and it's so helpful. This is how it defines the providence of God. It says, it is the continuing work of God to sustain this created universe in existence and to direct it towards its end. Providence includes one, preservation, God's work to maintain the creation in existence and functioning as he designed it. Two, cooperation, God's work of collaborating with all created realities as they act and occur. And three is government, God's work of directing the creation towards its divinely purposed end. Another word that you might hear if you're, if you're in church or going to be around church or in Christian conversations is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is the divine attribute of God as the all-powerful king who exercises supreme rule over all of his creation. It's just the idea that it's God's world and it's God's way that he is the creator and the governor of all of the earth. So when James reminds us, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. 
That small phrase, if the Lord wills, what he's doing is he's calling our attention to the spiritual reality that while our life is a vapor and the control that we have is incredibly fragile, that God's in complete control of everything, everywhere, all the time. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, the creator of the world is doubtless also the governor of it. He that had power to give being to the world and set all the parts of it in order. In my house, we do the New City Catechism with my kids. And the second question in the New City Catechism, it asks, who is God? And the answer is, he is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. That means every breath, every moment, every blade of grass that grows, God is creating and sustaining. That means as we sit here today, the oxygen you breathe in and out is only happening because God is sustaining us to allow it to happen. And that is how fragile and out of control we are. Where is this in scripture? I wanna show you a few verses, okay? Proverbs 16, 19 says this. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good according to his purpose. For those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, there's this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he swells up with his pride as he rules over the kingdom. And as he swells up with pride, God takes him through this incredibly bizarre experience in order to humble him. You should go read about this in the book of Daniel. It's really interesting. And on the other side of that experience, he comes out humbled. And this is what he says. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done now I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, just like the merchants that James is addressing here, we're all prone to fall into this delusion that we're all in more control than we actually are. Right? We plan according to the world in front of us based on our wants and our needs and our comforts and our conveniences. And we fail to consider that God 
does have his own will. We fail to consider God at all a lot of times. So the second song we sang, I will make room for whatever you want, God. And I just got to ask, in all of your plans and your dreams and your ideas, have you made room for what God might want? Have you even considered it? Have you ever asked him? And so I, I just want to call you today to lay down some of those plans and to not hold your life like this, but say, God, whatever you want. I'm not honestly in control anyway. What you want. Francis Schaeffer says it this way. He says that Christian faith means bowing twice. We bow before God first as the source of being and second as the source of morality. This is what that means. In other words, we bow before God because we are creatures and he's the creator. Then we bow again because we are sinners and he is the judge and the savior. Every breath we breathe is a gift from God. He is the fount and source of everything, and we infinitely are vulnerable before him, infinitely dependent on him, and infinitely receptive of him. Listen, there's a lot of comfort today in knowing that, yes, our lives are fragile. Yes, our plans are fragile. But there is a good God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And I feel so much better knowing that he's the one in charge and not me. That I'm not even big enough to mess up his plan for my life and what he wants to do in me and through me and in all of the rest of the world. So may we be lost in the magnitude of our God as he wraps us up into his huge, tender, loving arms. We're allowed to feel small and not just allowed, but we're comforted by it.